Hey, banditos. We've done it. We've made it another week. So welcome to another Wednesday episode of the Dollar Bin Bandits on this September 14th. I am Joe Marcello. I'm Warren Phillips. I'm Mike Farah. And today we have a really great episode for you. We're bringing you our interview with another person that was integral in our childhoods and probably yours as well. Uh, we're talking to none other than Tom Cook. So Masters of the Universe, Filmation's Ghostbusters, The Flintstones, Scooby-Doo, Godzilla, Thundar the Barbarian, She-Ra, Super Friends. Those are just some of the shows he's worked on. Uh, we get into his career in comics, uh, the types of animation, how animation has changed over the years. Uh, something I was always fascinated, fascinated with was what was up with the Master of the Universe animation. So we touch on that, too. Great, great episode. Yeah, like you just said, Joe, he touched on so many different cartoons that we all watched, we all enjoyed, hearing his stories, hearing the people he got to interact with, and how some of these shows came together was absolutely fascinating. I don't know how I did it, but I missed yet another animation episode of the Dollar Bin Bandits. Um, Why am I not around for these uh, great episodes? Because I watch these cartoons, too. And Tom Cook seemed like a really uh, creative guy. As we've all said, worked on so many of the childhood memories shows that we um, cherish. And uh, I think you'll get a kick out of this one. So let's get to it. This is Tom Cook. Warren and I, I got to tell you, are extremely excited to be talking to our guest. Uh, I, dare I say, everything that he worked on shaped our childhood. Um, there's not one piece of work that he worked on that... I don't think we haven't seen. Um, we are talking to director animator Tom Cook. How's it going, Tom? Howdy, very good. Uh, I I, I uh, I'm not joking when we say that because going through your list of work, I was just like, oh my god, I've seen everything and I loved it all. <laughs> um, so first off, as the the inner child in us, thank you, mm-hmm. and uh, thank you for taking the time to talk to us. Um, hey, my just, pleasure. Uh, to start off, how did you get your start in the business? Well, it was just the strangest way to start out a career, that's for sure. I was uh, a transit bus driver in Los Angeles. And, uh, you know, ironically, my bus went by Hanna-Barbera two or three times every day, going from the valley into Hollywood. And uh, I just always wanted to go in and, like, tour the place because that was where my cartoons were all created. You know, the early stuff like Quick Draw McGraw and Yogi Bear, Huckleberry Hound, that was all stuff when I was a little kid that I really loved when they first came out. And uh, so one day I was, I think it was my day off and I went out to get the mail and it was just a bunch of junk mail that I usually just throw in the trash. And I threw it on my kitchen table, made myself a sandwich and sat down to eat and saw this little pamphlet amongst the mail and said, I'll just kind of flip through this while I'm eating. And it was the local college, which was at that time, San Fernando Valley State College. And there's summer classes that they were going to hold. And so I didn't really have any idea. I'd ever, I didn't really want to go to college. Um, I've already done college before that, but I started thumbing through this booklet and it said comic book class. And that kind of caught my interest because I was a big comic book fan. I mean, you know, that's the reason I started drawing was because of uh, of uh, Stan Lee and, and Steve Ditko and Spider-Man. 
Um, so, so I finally said, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to take this class. I wanted to go meet the teacher who was, uh, Don Rico, who I knew was a animator or a uh, comic book artist on, on Captain America. And, uh, so I thought, well, this is great. I'll learn a little bit more on how comic books are made and at the same time. I'll get to meet one of the actual artists. And uh, we brought on our portfolios and he was looking through them as we talked about what we we're going to do for a comic book between the uh, students. And after the class, he asked me to come over and talk to him for a minute. And uh, I kind of had this feeling like maybe I did something wrong the way he said it. You know, I said, hey, Tom, can I talk to you for a minute? And uh, he says, no, no, no. He says, I, I, uh, I work at Hanna-Barbera as a um, storyboard artist. And uh, we're looking for people that can draw superheroes. And I really like your superhero stuff that you have in your in your uh, portfolio. We have a lot of people that can draw Fred and Barney and Scooby-Doo, but they're not really good with the human figure. Uh, I could recommend you to a class that they hold at the studio uh, every Thursday night. And it's free as long as one of us recommend you. And my jaw just hit the floor. It's like, you're kidding me, you know, and. He said, no, no, no. And he says, and sometimes they'll hire out of that class. So there are about 30 people in the class. And three weeks later, I get hired out of the class. <laughs> so bus driver to animator in three weeks with no experience. I would, I would like that <laughs> career path. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty good. It was very easy. <laughs> What was it about the comic book art that caught your eye? I know you mentioned Steve Ditko. Were there other artists whose style you kind of, you know, really attached to? Sure. Like, uh, you know, when I, cause I, I was born in 52 mm -hmm. and comics had kind of gone through a little after the war, uh, the superhero comics kind of died out. And uh, I would, there were still like Superman and Batman, but there wasn't much else. And so that's kind of what I collected. Uh, and I didn't really collect. I just bought them and kept them. You know, I, I like I said, I was just one of these guys that I don't throw things away. Mm. And uh, so then suddenly it was around 1961, 62 that uh, I lived out on Long Island. It was a very rural area, lots of woods behind us and stuff. And me and my next door neighbor set up the tent out in the woods and we camped out that night and we were sitting there reading comic books by flashlight, you know, like you hear people doing all the time. Mm -hmm. And uh, he pulls out this comic book called Spider-Man. And I'm like, what in the heck is that? Because it looked nothing like Superman or Batman. It was just completely different looking character. And so right there on the spot, I just traded him every comic I had for these couple of comics he had. He had one Fantastic Four as well, which I'd never heard of before. But Spider-Man's the one that really, really grabbed me because Peter Parker was the shy kid. I was a shy kid. You know, he wasn't good with the girls. Well, I was too young to even know what girls were at that point. But I knew I was going to be the same thing. And just I'm, I'm too shy to really uh, approach girls. <coughs> so, um, but it was, it was Steve Ditko's, the way he drew Spider-Man in, in such a way that was just so spider-like instead of superman and batman just were heroic all the time mm -hmm. spider-man always had these really interesting poses and uh so that's kind of how i started learning to draw is i would take my comic 
and I'd find a good pose that Steve Ditko did, and then I'd try to replicate it over here. And uh, slowly as time passed, I started saying, well, let, let me make my own poses, you know. And, uh, and then me and a friend of mine started saying, let's do a comic book together. So we wrote this comic book, and, and it was horrible, but it didn't matter because it was fun. And so that's really what, what got me started on the road to drawing was uh, Steve Ditko and Spider-Man. Important question. Do you still have any of those comics? Well, I had every one of them up until about, I'm going to say maybe 15 years ago. I took them all to Heritage and uh, sold them all at Heritage Auctions. Okay. And that was to help pay the house off that I have. <clears throat> and now I've gone out and I've repurchased all of them graded. Oh, wow. So I've got Spider-Man like amazing fantasy 15 through uh number 150 or 200 or something like that all graded wow and some of my favorite fantastic fours i've got you know the first galactus and the first silver surfer and then x-men number one so i i went back and bought the things that really really meant a lot to me because i had basically everything when i sold them i mean i had you know hulk ms marvel uh you know, masters of kung fu but a lot of those really didn't mean much to me it was really the older comics like even the the avengers but not really to the the defenders mm -hmm. that was a little bit too late i, I like the, the original avengers so so that's what i've got left i've got eh, maybe maybe 400 or so graded comics wow and so uh, you've done what we all joke about doing when we get them like oh i'm gonna put my child through college i'm going to buy it a house and you did that and then you <laughs> yeah. got them back yeah 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 well That's and awesome. it was because it was because as you start to get older it's like nobody in my family knows anything about comic books so if i die they're gonna give them away <laughs> yeah they don't realize this is hundreds of thousands of dollars that they're giving away yeah. i remember when i first met my wife um i don't even remember what we were talking about but she she kind of said oh yeah and she reached over and just ripped up one of my comic books Ooh. now it wasn't a real expensive one luckily but i said look you just ruined like 50 bucks and she's like what and i said yes these aren't worth like 10 cents these are worth money so that kind of educated her really fast. <laughs> so, uh, so now she's aware, but, uh, you know, it, uh, it just got to the point where I had so many comics because I had 160 boxes of wow. everything. And it was like, do I want to pay my house off or do I want to have the comics? And I thought, well, I'll pay the house off. Now I've got money coming in where I can rebuy stuff. And once the grading came in, I didn't want to have to send 160 boxes of comics in to get graded. So this way I could just buy the ones I want at the grades I want. And, uh, and that's what I've done. So. Wow. We are very jealous, sir. Yeah, really. I mean, <laughs> pick my jaw off the floor for a second. Yeah, really. Good Lord. <laughs> um, so just to, to, uh, Switch gears a bit. I want to discuss your your career in animation, but specific specifically, if I could speak, um, what your role as animator really covered. Uh, you know, we all, you know, Orn and I, and those listening, I think we're all familiar with what animators do. But 
you know, the, their jobs may vary from uh, maybe from property to property or, you know, whatever right. you're working on. Well, and what really happens is when I do these cons, a lot of people, they really don't know what an animator is. You know, they don't know what a director does. They really don't know anything about it because they'll come up and I'll get, uh, oh, wow, you created Scooby-Doo? Like, no, I didn't create Scooby-Doo. Scooby-Doo was Hanna-Barbera, you know, and same thing with He-Man. You know, you created He-Man? No, Mattel Toys created He-Man. I made the move, you know, and that's, it. it's a disconnect. They don't understand, because a lot of people don't realize uh, that you have to draw every single drawing to get them to move. And especially, like, I, I have this little flip book that I did that I carry with me everywhere so I can show kids because you tell the kids, you know, I drew each drawing on a piece of paper and then they film it and put the film through a projector and they go, what's film and what's a projector? And it's like, yeah, I get it. You know, you don't understand what a projector is. You don't have them anymore. Right. So I just show them how each drawing is a little bit different and how it makes it the character move. And that's basically what the animator does is uh, now when I first started Hanna-Barbera, when I got hired, I was hired as an assistant animator. Thankfully, because, of course, I had no experience, so I didn't know anything about how to animate anything. And when I told the director, I said, look, I know you're hiring me and I'm excited as heck that I got this job. I mean, this is like this is like a dream job that I never could even dream come true, you know. And but I don't know what I'm doing. I've been in this class for three weeks. I've done like two in-betweens, which I they were terrible. And he said, we don't care because you could draw well and you're going to be an assistant to the animator. So you're going to sit with an animator and he's going to hand you the work. And you're basically going to clean up his drawings and do those in-betweens. So he drew everything. The animator draws in blue pencil. And they use blue pencil because when you Xerox the drawing onto a cell, blue pencil doesn't get picked up by Xerox. Hmm. I mean, you might have heard non-photo blue. That's one of the things we use. And so that way, the assistant can put the black line right on top of the blue line that was there made by the animator, clean it up, make it tighter, make it look more like the character. Because the animator wants to make the character move. He doesn't care if it looks exactly perfect like the character. His job is to get everything moving. And it was my job as an assistant to clean it up and make it look like the character and fill in those spots. And so... The assistant really does all of the the drawings. Like if there's 50 drawings in the scene, you do all 50 drawings. With the animator, you just do the key poses. So you might do key, you know, pose number one, number five, number 10, number 15, you know, whatever is needed to get the assistant so he can follow the movement that you're doing easily. If it was some difficult movement, you might put a couple of real rough sketches of what you want the guy's hand to be doing. Because uh, especially if he's throwing something, if, if he's got the ball hold of, held here and you give this drawing to the assistant and then the next drawing, he's thrown the ball. So his hands like this. Well, it doesn't just it doesn't do this 
it's more this. So it goes really fast. So you would put more, fewer drawings, but make it move to this faster. And in order for the assistant to understand, you had to put in some roughs to give them an idea that you want to move faster. Um, Most assistants don't understand animation to the point where they could fill that in without some help. Unless you become a really long time assistant, then you can know. But me, like I said, I'm I was so green. You know, I I actually drew the Fred Flintstones. That was the first scene that I did. After I got all this scene done and I turned it into the animator, he goes, you know, uh, Fred doesn't really quite look enough like Fred. And I said, well, I kind of thought that when I was cleaning it up. And he said, yeah, well, you're supposed to make it look better. And I'm like, I had no idea. I didn't want to mess your drawings up. So I did it right as you did it. And he said, no, 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 no. You've got to you've got to clean it up and make it look exactly like the model sheet. So lesson number one. First day, lesson number one, complete goof up. Luckily, Fred was moving really fast, so it didn't really make that big of a difference. But if it had been a a more slow scene or he's going to be standing there talking, I would have had to redo it. It seems like someone got the roles and the job description backwards in the hierarchy. (laughs) Because what you're describing is, I mean, you're, you're making what the people see. Yes. Not to take anything away from the, you know, the animator, but what you are doing is really what people see versus like a storyboard artist, which is just, you know, kind of doing the the wire frame of movement. And you're filling in all the. Yeah, everything, every other thing like the the storyboard artist, the layout. um, I mean, it's you need those. Because I won't know what to do unless I've got the layout showing me how big the character should be and all that sort of thing. But those things don't show in the story. You know, when you're watching the cartoon, it's my work that you're seeing. It's not it's not the animator. I mean, the uh, storyboard or the uh, layout artist. But even though it's the assistant's actual drawing, it's still the animator's movement that you're seeing. Whereas as an assistant, I couldn't make it move like that. And they don't want him spending all the time because he could draw just as good as I could and make it cleaned up, but they want him to use his talents to do the next scene Mm -hmm. instead of wasting all his time finishing off this one scene. So that way every scene will look really good. And then the assistant will follow up. So even though it's my drawing on the screen, it's really, I'm going over his drawing. So it's really, really his drawing. It's just my finalized drawing. Okay. I still think you did better work. Confusing. It's confusing. (laughs) Um, You know, when, obviously there are different styles of, you know, the the shows have different styles. Um, When you're doing a show such as like anything from Hanna-Barbera versus Masters of the Universe, which is just um, by far just fabulous to look at. Even the backgrounds are just beautiful. I agree. Um, Are there, and uh, this is a little off our script. It's just something that I'm, I'm fascinated by this and I I really want to pick your brain about it because I'm interested. Are there fewer frames on shows such as like Hanna-Barbera type cartoons or Super Friends versus something like uh, Masters of the Universe that is, and I say that because it seems like, you know, in um, 
in He-Man, you know, there's a the, the movement is much more fluid. Yeah. Um different style of animation obviously, but you're seeing like, you know, he stops, he turns and, you know, the whole movement you could just see it almost frame by frame whereas uh, you know, Super Friends is a different style. So it looks a little bit more um I don't know what's the proper term. Uh blocky or something. I don't know. Yeah. I'm not describing it correctly, but No, I, I know exactly what you mean though. Um, okay. Thank God. Because okay. You have to kind of know some of the history of what happened. Um when I first started in seventy eight there was uh, Filmation, Hanna-Barbera, Ruby Spears, Rankin and Bass, DePatty Freeling, uh, Jay Ward, Disney. There were probably eight, nine different studios to work at. Okay. In 1980 or 81, uh, I think it was 80, uh, the union went on strike demanding double the pay. As I recall, they actually wanted to double our pay. Well, Hanna-Barbera had said, if you guys go on strike, we're going to have to send the work to Japan and Korea because we can't afford to pay you double. I mean, you know, we're we're making some money right now, but it's not an unbelievable amount of money that they we're making. It's really expensive to do an episode of a cartoon. And so the union would not relent. And Hanna-Barbera closed its doors. Ruby Spears closed its doors. The Patty Freeling closed. They all closed and sent the work overseas. Mm. The only studio that didn't do that was Filmation. And that's because Lou Scheimer, the head of Filmation, said, this is an American art form. We're keeping it here. And he says, look, all of my friends work in this business. Why would I put them out of work? And uh, unfortunately, Hanna-Barbera didn't feel that way. And uh, so we ended up having to kind of take what the union was offering, uh, which was still a raise, but it wasn't as good as they wanted. And then all of a sudden there was no work. There was nowhere to work. Well, I had been working at Ruby Spears when all this was taking place, doing Thunder of the Barbarian and uh, Plastic Man. And I kind of saw the writing on the wall. And I called up a friend of mine at Filmation, said, are they hiring over at Filmation? And they said, yeah. So I jumped over there. Okay. So I got my job at Filmation while everybody else was still picketing. And then when they didn't have a job left, well, there were some still some places at Filmation, but not many, not enough for, you know, the seven or 800 people that just been laid off of their jobs. So that's the background for what we had to do with He-Man. Okay. Because we were paying union rates as opposed to Japan being able to pay like a buck an hour for their, you know, animators or whatever they were paying over there. Our budgets were much higher than the Japanese budgets were. So in order to keep our budgets low, we did a bunch of rotoscope of, we had some guys, big muscle bound guys come in and run and we'd film them. And then we'd take the film and we'd turn them into He-Man or Skeletor or whatever the characters were going to be. So now anytime a character ran through the scene, we could use the same drawings of the same cells that we had used previously. Well, we had to have 25% of each episode be this reused animation. That's why uh -huh. He-Man was always punching the screen. You know, that was one of the cells that we always used 
So whenever it came time to use that, we'd use that same thing, just change the background. There was so much recycled footage. And yeah, it, yeah. I, yeah, I've always, you know, questioned it. And I was going to ask that later and, on. But... And people always thought we were like too lazy or we weren't talented enough. And that wasn't it at all. We had to do this to save money. Otherwise, we're out of business. And then even during the process of doing the episode, uh, every day, uh, Lou would go into a room and they look at what they call the dailies. And that was everything that was filmed on camera the day before. So they would see if there were any mistakes to fix them, but they would also look. And if they saw a scene that was really good, I was lucky enough. I had one where he uh, beast man takes his whip and whips it. He man off stage and then he man catches the whip and then does this over his head and throws him off stage. So when Lou saw that, he said, okay, stop, mark that down. That scene, anytime He-Man fights Beast-Man, we'll do that same scene again. But we might do it with a different background. We'll do a close-up instead of the faraway shot. So it's always going to look a little different, even though it's exactly the same. But when you think about it, if I run, I look the same running no matter how many times I run. So why not use the same run? You know, it really doesn't matter. And it's to do a run is one of the more difficult things because it's very uh, mechanical. You know, you've got to have 12 frames and it's got the leg has to do this at this frame and this at that frame. If it doesn't, it doesn't look right. So when you worked out some really good run cycles, it was perfect. Let's use them over and over and over. And that's why He-Man and the gang all ran everywhere. Because we had to find all these ships. Why are you running? (laughs) Exactly. The one so, scene that sticks out in my head that you're that you're now that you're talking that uh, I always rem- remember because it just seems so out of place. It's a it's a scene that would always play where He Man runs, stops, and tosses the sword from hand to hand. Right, and he's like looking. I'm like, what, yeah. are you, what are you doing with your sword, man? Like, what is, <laughs> what is the deal? Like, yeah. come on. Well, somebody yeah. thought that was cool. <laughs> and and I mean, they did it, and, and I'm sure it was probably rotoscoped because that's not something. It's a lot of work to do to do that. But if if you have some actor do it, yeah. and then you're just turning him into He Man, it's a little bit easier. Um, and that's why things look very fluid because it was yeah. you know real people doing that. But even with the rest of the show, uh, you know, I think we had some really good animators, and for the most part, everything looked pretty good. I think everything um, but, looked fabulous. I mean, regardless I mean, for the of amount the of footage, difficulty I mean, with drawing that many things on people, because you know, we had that that gray thing on the the belt, and then the belt here, and the that was a lot of work to draw all that stuff and animate everything. And uh, everyone is why, jacked, so yeah. you're showing drawing all the muscles and you know, exactly. abs so and you know, eh, if if you look at Super Friends, they've got if there's an arm, there might be one little line here to show there's a muscle. And that's it. With He-Man, there were lines everywhere because he was just bulk like crazy, yeah. you know. And so you had to keep those. When when the character moved, those lines had to move with him. And that's where the in-betweener really had to be careful because you don't want the muscle to look like it gets smaller. You had to keep the volume of that muscle the same throughout the scene. And uh, I'm, I'm just telling you, a lot of the people that worked at Filmation ended up working at Disney once Filmation went out of business. 
and they worked on Beauty and the Beast and Tarzan, the Little Mermaid and, and Aladdin. So it wasn't lack of talent. It was lack of time uh, in TV. That's what made TV shows not as good is we had to get, especially with He-Man, we had to do an episode a week. Wow. You know, it was 65 episodes per season. Whereas with like Scooby-Doo, it was 13 episodes per week because it was just on Saturdays. So you play 13 weeks of Saturdays. That's a lot of days. But Monday through Friday, 13 weeks is 65 episodes. So suddenly we had twice as much work and yet half as much time to get it done. So, I mean, I I tip my hat to the people I work with because I can't believe we did it. I tip my hat too because my after school would have sucked. <laughs> I want to jump back. Um, you are a young man. You get an opportunity at Hanna Barbera. You walk through the doors. Uh, what's that experience like? And was it as a magical place as in your mind you thought it would be? Well, <laughs> it's funny because when when I was recommended for that class. Uh, they said, we want you to go in and meet the guy who teaches that class. His name was Harry Love. Mm-hmm. Really nice old guy. And uh, so here I am. I'm taking that same portfolio, carrying that in with me. And I'm, I'm walking in the front door of Hanna-Barbera. You know, I couldn't believe it, right? So I get to the desk and the secretary says, you know, who are you here to see? Yes, I'm here to see Harry Love. Harry comes out, takes me into his office. And he starts looking through my portfolio and he stops and he goes over to the phone and he dials the phone and he says, you got to come down here. So he hung up the phone and like maybe three minutes later, Joe Barbera walks in the room. So I'm like, I'm like, I can't believe I just, I'm meeting Joe Barbera. I I'm completely shocked because I thought this is just going to be a really easygoing interview. And so Joe, he's, you know, Harry says to Joe, look at this stuff. Isn't this stuff that we need for super friends? So he looks through it and he said, you know, he said, we would hire you right this minute. But we don't have any, any desks left. We're so full with people that we don't have any desks left. But we're going to put you in the class. And then chances are, when it comes time, we'll probably hire you. Well, I still don't. You know, people tell you stuff like that all the time. So I didn't take that to heart. Mm-hmm. But then when three weeks later, because there were probably about maybe 35 people in the class. And I thought these people have been doing this for months where I've been there for three weeks. But true to their word, I was one of the ones that they picked. There were four of us that they picked. And uh, so it was just such a shock to be sitting there in this room on an animation desk that the Flintstones or the Jetsons or anything like that had been done because I'm like you guys, I love this stuff. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm not just some guy that is an artist and always wanted the dream of being this cartoonist. I never had that dream. This I've just been plunked into my, you know, my fantasy land. Mm -hmm. And as far as it being as good as I thought it would be, well, I always thought it was going to be hard work, and it was. I mean, boy, we worked our butts off. And some days you come to work and you're like, I don't want to draw. I just am so sick of drawing that I don't want to draw. So you kind of 
putts around doing some other things to get ready for the next show or whatever. Mm-hmm. And uh, but you had to make a certain amount of footage every week in order to do your quota so that they don't fire you for being you know too slow. So you had to kind of gauge that, but um, but still overall, I mean, it was still just uh, up until the very end. I was just pinching myself that I was doing this. I mean, it, what a what an incredible um, life I got to lead, you know. Well, you mentioned Super Friends, and as a, a comic fan, yeah. when this is mentioned to you, and and you get the job to be on it. Um, it must have been outrageous to be able to work on Superman and Batman and Aquaman yeah. and all these characters that you you know had grown up with. Yeah, and that's exactly right. Uh, when they gave me my first scene of um, Super Friends, it was a Batman scene, and uh, there was a guy that was an animator named Sean Newton. He was a Canadian, incredible animator, really really good. So. If you saw his scenes in Super Friends, they weren't blocky like you're talking about. This guy knew what he was doing. I I remember the scene. It was like there was a helicopter, and it was kind of a worm's eye view where you're looking up at the helicopter. And this this ladder comes out that kind of comes down like this and gets bigger as it comes towards the camera. And then Batman starts walking down the, the ladder, getting bigger as he's getting towards the bottom of the page incredibly difficult to animate that to begin with and as a a brand new assistant man was it difficult to do the assistant work on that because a lot of assistant work is placing one drawing on top of the other so you keep the sizes right and this time the sizes aren't supposed to be right it's going to be getting bigger as it gets towards you so it's all my eye that has to figure that out but the scene was so good and and after he gets down the ladder he jumps off stage and then you cut and he lands on this uh missile that's kind of flying through the air and he does this and undoes the nose cone the nose cone falls off he reaches into the front pulls out all the guts of the missile throws it off and then jumps off the missile and it was like the best scene ever and i got to do it and it was batman i mean so it was just like you know, pinch myself. I couldn't believe it. That's awesome. How involved was DC on the day-to-day with the with the show? Did they kind of let you guys do what you want or do they have sort of uh, parameters they wanted you guys to follow? Well, it's, it's one of my biggest problems with any sort of a cartoon show that was based on a comic is that the people that are writing them aren't the people that wrote the comic. Right. So it's that's why Super Friends was so different than even Justice League. I mean, it it had a completely different feel to it. Plus, it was for littler kids. So that's why they ended up adding, you know, um, the Wonder Twins, or they had, uh, what was it? Um, The Wonder Dog. Oh, Marvin and Wendy. Yeah, Marvin and Wendy. And it was because they wanted to have some interplay, some comedy, which, you know, you know, you don't have that in your comic books. So that was a little bit of the difficulty with me is I wanted the, the stories to really be deep and meaningful as a comic book fan. And they were kind of so lighthearted and silly. And, and it was really because the writers, uh, they wrote Huckleberry Hound. You know, they don't know super friends. They Nobody had the background of 
how Superman would react to certain things. They just made it up. Yeah. And, um, but the fact that I was even working on the characters was what, what made it good for me. Um, and it was that way with, like I said, every one of the shows until a little bit later on when they finally started having people that were comic book writers come in. Like Thundar was uh, um, Gerber. What's, what's the first? Steve Gerber. Steve Gerber. Yeah. yeah. Steve Gerber and Jack Kirby. Mm-hmm. Uh, were involved with Thunder the Barbarian, which is why it wasn't silly. You know, it was well done and well written and a great storyline. And um, that's when, when I was working on that, that, that's my favorite show I've ever worked on, just for the fact that, number one, I got to meet Jack Kirby at the studio, which he was my, you know, along with Steve Ditko, he was the, the hero. And, um, and that the stories were so good and it was so well done that made it really something I could be proud that I worked on, you know? Right. Oh, oh my last question about uh, super friends is I know there were some characters that were created just for the show. Um, yeah. that were not in the comic book canon. Uh, did you have any experience uh, creating the, the look for some of those characters? Cause I remember there was like Apache chief. No, okay. Okay. no, as, as an animator, you're there to move the characters. You don't design anything. And there's a design team that, I mean, if if in the episode there's going to be a scooter and there's going to be a, a bow and arrow, they design it. And then they give you three different angles so you know what it looks like so the animators can draw it all the same. Mm-hmm. But we had nothing to do with any of the designs of anything. Um, and for, for Super Friends, it was mainly uh, Alex Toth. Oh, okay. He did most of the character designs and it, it was so good because they were so simple. I mean, there were so few lines because the more lines, the more time it takes to draw something, the more expensive it is to get it done. So you boil it down to the fewest lines possible. And that's what he could do and still make Batman and Superman and Wonder Woman look so good. Because those characters are really nicely designed. The Batman is right up there with the best Batman, you know. And it's just because the way he designed it was so well done. And um, and then you got the voices that add that too, you know. And the voices were good, so it was uh, you know it was really really uh, really really cool to work on that that stuff and and to be there and and watch as new things came out when the new episode comes out and you get the storyboard and now you're looking at what, you know, what props they're going to have. That's what they call it as props. And, um, you know, sometimes the props were really simple, but sometimes they're really difficult to do. Um, you know, one of the tougher shows was uh, Godzilla because they wanted us to do the thick and thin line that you had in comic books. Uh, most of the other shows, they just want a very consistent thin line but this one, they wanted to really look because he was so big. They wanted to really look like it was big. So we had to learn this whole thick and thin line thing, which is more comic book than cartoon, really. And luckily for me, since I had done my own comic book art for myself, I still was used to the thick and thin. So my Godzilla stuff looked pretty good, you know, compared to some of the other guys. I want to jump to um, a show you worked on called The Ghostbusters, yeah. Uh, which I was fascinated with 
because of I love the other Ghostbusters. Yeah. And there was a lot of confusion for me as a child because I wasn't aware of the live action series that predated yes. it. Um, <clears throat> first of all, was there so I know, you know, some of the back history as pertains to the the uh, live action Ghostbusters and there was some rights issues for them to use the Ghostbusters name from that series to the movie. Was there any of that as pertained to the cartoon well, you know, they called it Filmation's Ghostbusters right. to differentiate it from the other one. But, I mean, basically what happened is, you know, like you said, we had a, a live action show with Forrest Tucker and Larry Storch, mm-hmm. both from F Troop, which was an old TV show. Yep. And Larry Storch just died like maybe last month, two weeks ago. Yeah. At 99 years old. But so anyway, they were the live action Ghostbusters with a guy in a gorilla suit. Well, when they finally decided to do the cartoon, uh, Dan Aykroyd had already done the movie. And so they contacted us and said they want to use the name Ghostbusters for their movie. So they paid, you know, I don't know how much, a couple hundred thousand dollars or something for the rights to use the name for their movie. Um, so that's where when we did Filmation's Ghostbusters cartoon show, that's where kids like you got confused thinking, this is Ghostbusters. Yeah. Well, yeah, it is. It's the one from 74. It was actually the original. <laughs> yeah. And so we got a lot of grief because, oh, you're ripping off Ghostbusters. And so I'd have to always say, no, 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 no. We didn't rip anybody off. They paid for the right to use the name, but it's still our property. And and now we took those live action characters and it was basically their kids that they had given the Ghostbuster franchise to right. that now were in cartoon form. So that was their kids that we did. And and the monkey was still alive because I guess gorillas live a long time. But, <laughs> uh, but yeah, I think but that it was uh, it was a good it was a really good show. I thought I, and, I thought uh, so, too. It, I, it didn't yeah. get enough. And it was uh, catchy. Right. Yeah, it was. It was. Yeah. Um, it it was, you know, at times, dare I say, it was a little little dark, you know, yeah. I mean, not gratuitously, but, you know, like sure, compared sure, to sure. some of the other stuff that was on TV at the time, yeah. uh, given the subject matter, I guess it was, you know, it was. But it, I think it was, you know, it wasn't on that long, certainly not as much as the, dare I say, the real Ghostbusters. No, yeah, it had, it had two seasons. Yeah, um, I thought it was a fun show. I really enjoyed there, it. There it was probably as many episodes as, as Real Ghostbusters, but again, Real Ghostbusters wasn't on five days a week at Ghostbusters was. Right. Think so Real Ghostbusters and, was like and Saturday. What, it was one of the really cool things, too, is that uh, you remember when they would say, let's go Ghostbusters, and they do a high five in the middle yes. of the camera there. Yeah. Yeah. And then the machine would come, and they'd get in this elevator and go way up there, and the machine would put their clothes on. Yes. Me, me and my friend did that whole sequence. Wow. Did you really? So every single episode, they showed that at least once. <laughs> so it was really a feather in our cap to have done that whole sequence. And, uh, I mean, really, just me and him did that whole thing. little so reminiscent. Cool. That scene, a little reminiscent of Voltron back in the day. I don't know if you were... Uh... Well, I, I don't even know because I don't watch Voltron because it's okay. a Japanese show. Okay. Well, yeah, no. The, the, no, the only reason kidding. why I say that is that a similar type of thing where they were, yeah. when it went, you know, it was time to 
go do the Voltron when, stuff. When was Voltron? Because I don't even know what the years it, were. It was, you know, around the same time. I mean, yeah. in our heads, all the cartoons kind of blend together in a time period. <laughs> but, yeah. um, you know, they had a very, it had like a, you know, once the, when the team was going to jump into the robot lions, they, they wouldn't high five. But like, you know, they would get into like a, a tube, swing down and like, you know, their suits would come on and stuff sure, like that. Sure. So I was like, hey, yeah. You know, anyway, but yeah, that was, uh, it was, a, I was definitely a fan of that yeah, and cool. was, um, the, I, I, on that one, I thought the animation was fabulous as well, only because like, um, it, it was darker than, you know, physically darker, um, right. than some of the other stuff, but, uh, you know, it just looked at a very rich color palette to it. Mm-hmm. And just was, you know, really interesting just to to see compared to some of the other stuff that was on. That's why yeah. I like Filmation's work compared to a lot of other yeah. um, animation that, at the time. Well, it's nice because um, I know that Filmation took a lot of crap, like I said, because of the reused animation of He-Man. Um, it, had a, it had a different... You could tell the style was different than Hanna-Barbera. Uh, Ruby Spears, because it was taken, it was two guys from Hanna-Barbera that started Ruby Spears, it was the same style. So it was really difficult to look at a Ruby Spears show and not think, oh, that's Hanna-Barbera. Mm -hmm. But if you saw a filmation show, you kind of knew it was filmation. Uh, we were a little bit more into realistic, you know, so the characters... Um, Everything looked a little bit more realistic, I think, on Filmation's characters than, and, and maybe a little bit better drawn. I'm not going to say better animated, but I think the detail in Filmation shows is much better. Like if you watch Flash Gordon or mm -hmm. Tarzan, those look beautiful. I yep. mean, they are so well drawn. And, and to do that in a TV series was really difficult uh, to get it to look that good. Now in Shira, one of the things about Shira that made it really, really good was that we had um, usually the animators, like I said, draw kind of rough and the assistants clean stuff up. Well, with men, you can do an in-between that doesn't look quite right, but it's moving so fast that it, it doesn't look bad as long as the key drawings look good. So the ones that the animator did that are really the good drawings, the five in between can be a little bit wonky and it'll still look pretty good. But in Shira, you had a woman that was beautiful with all this hair. So you couldn't have a couple of ugly Shiras turn into a beautiful Shira at the end. <laughs> so they had two or three really, really, really good assistant animators that were incredible at drawing beautiful women. They did all of the faces of She-Ra, which made it easier for us animators because now we don't have to waste all the time trying to make her look beautiful. We just kind of put the little cross show where her eyes should go and where her mouth is, and they would put in the detail. And so we wouldn't be wasting time animating that beautiful face. We would animate the body, and, and then it was off to them to fix the face. So a lot of times when you look at the, uh, the cells of She-Ra cells, if you get an in-between cell, it looks just as good as the key pose cells. Whereas if you if you buy a, a cell of He-Man that was one of the in-betweens, 
eh, it could be a little bit wonky looking because uh, it didn't really matter as much. Got it. Was there a series that you worked on that you think kind of is under the radar that folks maybe didn't take the time that they should have to really appreciate what it was? Yeah, you know, uh, when I was directing, uh, I directed something called Road Rovers. Okay. And it was a show that was actually created by one of the writers on He-Man. He was a pretty high, he was one of the head writers at He-Man, at Filmation. And when he left, because when Filmation went out of business in 89, every kind of just scattered, you know, you had no idea where you were going to work because there wasn't really anywhere to work left. And he got picked up by Warner Brothers. And um, that's right when they were doing Pinky and the Brain. And he came up with this thing called Road Rovers. And it was just super clever. I just loved the show. Uh, you ought to check it out. It's on DVD. Okay. And uh, it's basically dogs from around the world. Uh, and they have kind of like a, a Charlie from Charlie's Angels. It's a guy in the shadows that kind of has brought these dogs together. And he has something he calls the transdogrifier. I remember this. Show. And he puts these normal dogs into them and they turn half dog, half human. And there's like a Russian one. There's a German one. There's an American one. There's an Australian collie. That's the female. And uh, they've got a, a kind of like a bat cave. And the bat cave is the, the all of their vehicles look like dogs. So the, the submarine is shaped like a certain dog. The, so it's really cute like that. And then when they go out the bat cave, they go out and there's a doggy door that they have to go through to get out. But it's really a lot of fun, clever things like that. And there's this show. main villain that's that we're always trying to catch. And this one episode, they finally get him cornered. And it's like they got him. He's finally going to be captured. And he's in the corner and he just goes and pulls out a tennis ball and throws the tennis ball. And all the dogs go chasing the tennis ball. And so he gets away. But I directed three or four episodes of that. And I thought it was very, very clever. And I've had a few people at the shows uh, come up and because I've got a print of it. And a few people know what it is, but boy, I'll tell you, it's it's the one that nobody knows what it is. I I absolutely and, remember uh, that. I am yeah, not just saying that. I absolutely very, very remember well that. Done. I watched yeah, way too much well television. <laughs> yeah, I, I remember it. It was it was an interesting show. I mean, just from what you're describing, like I yeah. I googled the picture. I'm like, oh yeah, I definitely remember yeah. this. It was. Uh, I think it's right after. Uh, I think it was right after or before Pinky and the Brain. They they were on the same day, you know, back to back. And I remember at that point, um, my daughter was still pretty young. And when she'd get up, we'd go in and watch cartoons together. And that's one of the things we watched was Pinky and the Brain and Road Rovers. And then, of course, she was too young to realize when I'd said I directed this episode. She had no idea what I'm talking about. But uh, to this day, she can remember that because of our little times together, you know. It's, oh, that's awesome. Pretty cool. Um, I, I just want to switch gears uh, real quick. I know you discussed it already, but Masters of Universe. Um, for Orin and I and our, our the third member of our team, uh, Mike, who's not here, just absolutely adore the show. Yeah. Um, you know, the, the animation, absolutely top-notch, beautiful. Um, and, you know, the, the toys match the show. You know, everything looked the way it did, it did on the show. And it was absolutely fantastic. 
it's been redone over the years a number of different times and styles. I would love to know if you had any opinion on any of those. Yes, I have opinion. <laughs> Here we go. Next so the next question <laughs> I had was... <laughs> no, look, uh, I have argued this from, from the dawn of time. Uh, you have billions of fans across the world. I mean, I've been to Dubai. I've been to Ecuador. Everybody adores He-Man and the Masters of the Universe. Why are you changing it so that you have billions of people that hate you rather than just doing it like the original show and making, instead of doing stories for eight-year-olds, do stories for 45-year-olds, but keep the characters the same. And you would have billions and billions of fans that would be going nuts instead of disappointing them time and time again. So the um, the Kevin Smith version was a – supposedly a, it's a direct continuation of the original series. Yeah. So the – you know, a lot of the themes and, and um, uh, characters that were developed for that series, everything kind of carried over to where it is now. Even the fact that, um, you know, Tila didn't know that He-Man – Adam was He-Man and this person knew but that person didn't. And, of course, they've since evolved the characters – but I was I, I've always been, you know, I just was curious to hear your your thoughts on that because of your involvement on it. Because well, when I when I first said. when I first heard about this, I, I held out hope because Kevin Smith, you know, he's got a good reputation. Um, always liked the stuff he does. Uh, the fact that he liked He Man, I thought, well, that's a plus. You know, he's going to go in and at least have the reverence that everybody else does for it. But I still, I, I, I knew somebody, I was at a show at one of the cons with somebody, and he said he knew one of the guys that was designing the characters. And I said, man, can you get me involved? You know, I don't want to design any characters. I don't want to really do anything except help guide this in a direction that I think would be fan friendly. And I just never could get anybody to respond to me. It was just... Uh, pretty frustrating because um, I mean I, I didn't want to get involved with you know I'm not a story guy but I know a good story so I mean I could read what they have and tell them I don't know that's not I, I hated the fact that Tila all of a sudden was this mega witch with her hair shaved on one side like some punk rocker yeah when my my, my point always is this is Eternia this isn't the earth so why are you putting them in earth situations on a different planet come up with different why does there have to be uh i don't even know if there was any but why does there have to be racism on this planet let's pretend this planet got it right you know and and have it be a different scenario than earth mm -hmm. and of course with tila you know she was kind of you know he man i think they would have eventually gotten together had it not been for six-year-olds that are, we're writing to. Right. Um, but all of a sudden, she's like this mean woman just – I mean, she looked like – it was difficult for me with the with the design, the character design. Her and Evil Lynn looked almost identical. Mm -hmm. And they looked like men. 
they didn't look like women anymore. Tila was always very curvy and attractive. And all of a sudden she wasn't attractive at all. And so I just, I just didn't understand why they had to change that so much. Fair enough. It, it just changed the whole idea that they would eventually get together into why did they ever, why were they ever attracted to each other ever? You know, makes sense. Um, that being said, um, I, I was, you know, you, when I introduced you, I, I, I said that you, you know, you basically shaped our childhood and I would say you have, how does that feel for you being able to work on projects like He-Man, the Jetsons, you know, all the Hanna-Barbera stuff that has touched so many people and just, you know, in all the best ways, you know, like everyone they have just just great memories of their childhood. Sure. Like, you know, you had the two of us gushing about it. Yeah. No, well, and I'll tell you, it's, it's, um, it's weird. It's really weird. I, when I first started doing cons, um, you know, you have to, because people come up, the number one thing is everybody comes up and go, wow, you drew my childhood. I mean, really, if, if people gave me a dollar every time they said that, I, I wouldn't have to ever, pay any bill again. I mean, I would have made so much money because it's, it's universal that people say that. And my response is always, uh, well, this was my adulthood, you know, it's your childhood, but this is my adulthood. So how lucky was I, but see, I understand it because I was such a fan when I was a kid, you know, when I was a kid, if I had gotten the chance to meet the animator of Johnny quest, you know, because I love Johnny Quest. If if I was to meet the voice of Johnny Quest or anything to do with any of those cartoons, Dawes Butler, who people don't even know who Dawes Butler was. Most people don't know who he was. Dawes Butler was like Mel Blanc of Hanna-Barbera. You know, he was Yogi Bear, Quick Draw McGraw, Huckleberry Hound. Mm -hmm. He was Augie Doggy and Doggy Daddy. He was Elroy Jetson. He had so many voices that he did, yet nobody knew who the heck he was. I would have killed to have met Dawes Butler. You know, and unfortunately, when I got there, he was almost gone. You know, I didn't really get a chance to meet him because that's what somebody I would have sought out. I got to meet Tex Avery, who was a huge, you know, huge director at Warner Brothers. Um I got to meet Mel Blanc because they were doing an episode of the Flintstones one day. And the girl that sat next to me said, follow me. And we went down to watch them record uh, an episode of the Flintstones. And so it was all of them were there. You know, Fred was there and Wilma. And, but it was a different Wilma. No, it was a different Fred because the other guy, Alan Reed, had passed away. And it was a different Betty because B. Benaderet, who was Betty, had all also passed away. But there was there was a. Uh, Mel Blanc sitting on this stool doing all these weird animal characters and Fred, I mean, and Barney and everything. So to get to meet him was really kind of cool. But so for me, it's just, it's very difficult for me to realize that people come up and look at me like I look at Jack Kirby. You know what I mean? I mean, Jack Kirby is like the king, but Jack Kirby is thinking to himself, all I did was draw a comic book. Why am I? I'm a king of nothing. <laughs> and that's kind of what I feel like. I was just really lucky to have been able to be hired at, a, at this job. 
and to be good enough at it to be able to make a career of it. Um, so, I mean, it's humbling. It's very humbling to have people come up because I understand when they say this meant so much to me. I know because I lived that too when I was a kid. So I know exactly what you're talking about. It's just really weird that it's me, <laughs> you know? Well, it's uh, it's pretty cool for us to talk to, you know, one of the people that was so instrumental. And I understand, like know. I said, I understand. It's 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 awesome. I mean, I I love talking about it because it was such a great life. Um, I know some people that I work with that they hated it. You know, they didn't they didn't like cartoons. They didn't want to. All they could do is they draw they drew well. And they could make a living at it. So that's what they did. Opposite of me. I was eating it up. You know, I just couldn't believe every day of my career was just, oh, I can't believe I'm doing this. You know, it's and when you've got because what you do is you put the paper between your fingers and you're flipping it to see it as it moves. Mm -hmm. And as you're doing that and as you're drawing things and you, and you see it move nice and smoothly. It's just like, oh, man, that is just the best feeling. <laughs> and then you see it on screen, and it looks good, and you're just like, I did that. You know, it's it's pretty cool feeling. That's awesome. Um, before we go, where can fans follow you on social media or any of that good stuff? Well, I have a Facebook page. It's uh, just Tom Cook Animator. If you do that, it usually pops up. Um I had a website, but it was all done in front page. It's been out there for so long that they finally said, we're not going to honor front page anymore. So they, I had to pull it down. Uh, I'm hoping to redo it, but I'm not the greatest at web design. And I had some help the first time, but uh, that person can't help me right now. My wife's pretty good at it, so... She's going to help me with it, but she uh, just had a hysterectomy last week. So she's a little bit down right now, but uh, she'll eventually help me do it. And I'm going to set it up so it's like it was before where you could, uh, I'll have like pops or drawings or some prints that I can autograph and send to them. Um, you know, you could buy a commission if you wanted, you know, a drawing of Captain Caveman or whatever your favorite character is. I could do that for you. Um, here, I'll show you. I've got one right here that I just did. Uh, for somebody, this is um, oh shit, <laughs> and uh, so I do these at the Comic Con too. You know, you come up and I can I do it all in color because I want it to look kind of like a cell, right? But it's on paper, yeah. uh -huh. you know, and um, and I can do just about any character that I've worked on in the past. Uh, a lot of times I need to look it up for reference because I haven't drawn them in thirty years. But uh, stuff like Skeletor and stuff, uh, I know pretty well. Scooby-Doo, too. You know, I know him pretty well. But um, it's uh, it's enjoyable, and I especially love that people want a piece of art rather than just a print. You know, the prints are nice. I mean, it's, they're really nice prints. But, man, I'll tell you, I'm just – I'm the guy that collects art. So, I mean, I've got art all over this place. Um, you probably can't see it from the distance we've got, but right up – up in the corner, right above my finger, yeah. right there, that top drawing, that is Beanie and Cecil, uh, autographed by Bob Clampett, wow. who was the creator of Bugs Bunny. Oh, 
Yeah. Uh, I was working at Ruby Spears working on Thundar, and I was mentioning to somebody as I walked down the hallway that uh, I loved Beanie and Cecil when I was a kid because it came out in like the early 60s. So I was about eight or nine years old. And I've still got all the Beanie and Cecil toys. I've got them up in my um, closet up here. But so I'm mentioning it, and some guy leans his head out and he goes, uh, I was an animator on Beanie and Cecil. And I was like, oh, so, you know, we ended up talking and, and then later on in the day, I'm walking down the hall again, and I he pokes his head out of his office and goes, "Hey Tom, can I can I see you for a second? I said, "Yeah, sure." So I go in there, and he hands me the telephone. I go, "Hello," and he goes, "Hi, this is Bob Clampett." <laughs> well, what the heck do you say to Bob Clampett? <laughs> you know, I'm like tongue tied, and he sent me that that drawing, uh, autographed by him and the guy that helped me get the. Um, gave me the phone his name was carl bell just passed away i think it was 92 just passed away in march of this year and uh, it says in the in the clouds it says any friend of carl's is a friend of mine bob clampett wow and so it's stuff like that that i just love and all those other things up above me those are like promotional prints of a, a lot of the shows like huckleberry hound and yogi bear and quick draw and it's all the characters from the model sheets. And those were uh, things that they would give out to the uh, places where they're trying to sell the shows. So sort of promotional stuff. And uh, so see, like I said, I mean, you look at my, my backdrop and it's just toys and collectibles and. Yeah. I know nothing and, about that. <laughs> and my wife. Yeah. Yeah. And my wife hates my guts for it. <laughs> but uh, but I, you know, I just can't help myself. I mean, I've got the full Super Friends, the little maquettes back there. Nice. I've got, I've got the big, huge He-Man statues, all of them. I've got He-Man, Skeletor, Tila, Trapjaw, the whole bunch of them over here on the side. Um, you come over? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Believe me, it would be, it'll be a tour in itself. I'll tell you. Because, <laughs> uh, and plus, then I've got. I don't have many of my comics that I collect. I've got them somewhere off-site because they're worth so much money i don't want don't want to keep them here at the house but uh you know i've got books i've got like every book that ever came out comic book wise in uh, trade paperback form oh yeah so that way i didn't have to read the comics anymore i could pull out the book and not mess with my comic books yeah but uh yeah so i'm just uh i'm to my it's about time to start turning stuff around you i just turned 70 and uh I don't know how much longer do I have, you know? Oh, I got plenty of time. Yeah. I hope. I hope. I feel absolutely. Really good. So you are our king with all this. Not yeah, only work on the stuff, geez. but you have all this cool stuff in the background. <laughs> You're pretty much our Elvis. So uh, that's, cool. that's awesome. And we are back. Um, I love this interview. That's really all I could say about it. Uh, it was like pulling back a curtain on our childhood. Um, you know, as always, you know, we say this a lot. We would always love to have our, you know, this guest back, but I can't wait to have him back because, um, you know, we really just scratched the surface on his career. He's done so much and, you know, he genuinely appreciates the fact that we appreciate his work. So it was just a great conversation all around. And it also sounds like he has a pretty uh, ridiculous comic book collection as well. Yeah, that too. Uh, that, yeah, <laughs> I'm very envious of. Uh, but a well-deserved collection because he's earned every penny he has because it's it's changed the lives of so many kids and so many adults. It's nice to be appreciated. We appreciate Tom Cook. I appreciate you guys for doing this interview. 
appreciate, appreciate the listeners you. for listening to this episode or viewing this episode on YouTube. Guys, thank you so much for being here. Uh, please remember to rate, review, and subscribe, and we will see you next time. The Dollar Bin Bandits are Oren Phillips, Joe Marcello, and Mike Farah. New episodes release every Wednesday and Friday. You can find us on all the socials at Dollar Bin Bandits on Facebook and Instagram at DB Bandits on X. For more super nerdy discourse, join the Dollar Bin Banter group on Facebook. You can email us at dollarbinbandits at gmail.com. Please remember to rate, review, and subscribe wherever you found this episode. It's the easiest and most helpful way to grow the show. Looking for merch? Search us up on TeePublic. And if you want to support what we do, smash that support button on our website, dollarbinbandits.buzzsprout.com. Thank you to Sean McMillan for our graphics and Pat McGrath for our logo. Thank you to our friends at Tomorrow's Publishing, T-W-O-M-O-R-R-O-W-S.com. And thank you all for listening. Until next time, banditos.